Well, we're in Luke chapter 2 this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Forgive me for preaching about the birth of Jesus Christ outside of the month of December. Uh, I know it's very unusual, but we are going through the scriptures, and so we have come to this. Don't fear, there's many other passages about the birth of Jesus that we'll get to during the month of December, but we are talking about the incarnation this morning. The Lord God becoming flesh, the Lord coming down to live among us, to be uh, as a person. The the scriptural term that the the prophet Isaiah gives to this is Emmanuel, or God with us. That God making a, a way for there to be a personal relationship between us and Almighty God. A way for there to be a personal relationship then, now through the Holy Spirit, and then also teaching in the future that I have gone to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also, that this personal relationship that we have with the Lord now will continue on forever and forever. This is shockingly different from the rulers of this world and shockingly different than the relationship that we have with great people in our day. There is a, a place in the, city, in the center of the city of Beijing called the, first, the Forbidden City. The Forbidden City is a vast complex of about 800 wooden buildings that served for 500 years as the imperial palace for the ruling emperors of the Ming Dynasty. And this place took over a million laborers to build all these buildings in this, this central complex, but it was for one purpose— And that was to provide a secluded place where the emperor of China would never have to interact with the common people that lived in his country. It was called the Forbidden City because only by permission could anyone enter or exit the city, the the permission of the emperor. And the closest that people could get to the emperor, there was a gate called the Gate of Supreme Harmony. And this was the final gate before the imperial throne, and no common person could get anywhere near this gate. And if you were going to pass through this gate, you had to be a part of the imperial court officials. And when they passed through this gate and got near the emperor, they had to kowtow or bow all the way down till their forehead touches the ground nine times in order to show their allegiance to the emperor, who they called the Son of Heaven. And the whole point is that there was no personal interaction between the emperor and the people. And there were many things put in place to make sure that there was no personal interaction between the emperor and the people. And though we do not have this level of separation, now we understand this because even with our own president of the United States, there is no personal interaction there. There's always a security bubble around this person. There's always fences and gates and no way that a normal person is going to go and have personal interaction with the president. And yet, somehow, with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come to live among us, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, he who is more important than anyone, he comes in an intensely personal way and opens himself up and desires relationship with us that we might speak to him and know him in a personal way. It should never cease to amaze us that Jesus humbled himself And because of his great love for us, he came to live among us in the most personal and compassionate way possible. Amazing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. You can stay there in Luke, but I'm going to read this to you before we go to Luke. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes about what we're getting ready to read about in Luke chapter 2. 
In Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The scripture here tells us that Jesus intentionally emptied himself of his glory. Though he was without any need in heaven and the most exalted place possible, he intentionally poured out himself and humbled himself to come and be amongst us. And he came as a servant, not one demanding to be served, but one serving us. He humbled himself, counting us as his friends, and humbled himself to do the will of God even unto the point of death on a cross, that he might be our substitute, that we might live. Let's stand and honor the Lord as we read Luke chapter 2, the account of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. We're going to begin our, our time this morning in, in looking at the character of Joseph before we look at the humility of Jesus, because this is one of the few passages in the Bible where Joseph is mentioned. We spent time talking about Mary and her godliness in, in previous chapters, but Joseph is an important character. His role is important, and his godliness is important as a man. He was husband to Mary and the earthly father to Jesus. And we are told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, a little bit about how this period of time went down. Because Mary comes to him and tells him what has happened. And he has to react to that. So I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
So somewhere in the midst of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, Mary sees the angel Gabriel and gets this proclamation that she is going to bear the Son of God through a miraculous event. But at some point, she has to break this news to Joseph. And I think it's always interesting to think through the narrative of how these things happen. In the Gospel of Luke, we're not told exactly at what point she did this. But at some point in this process, she had to go to Joseph and tell him something very, very awkward. We can only imagine how this went down. Joseph, I'm pregnant. And Joseph is shocked. Well, it's okay. It's okay, Joseph. I'm pregnant. All right, this is going to be really weird. How am I going to explain this? I saw the angel Gabriel came to me and said that by a miracle, I was going to bear the Son of God. And it was going to be all the prophecies that we have hoped for the Messiah to come, that he's going to come and it's going to happen through me. And and you're going to be involved because you're from the lineage of David. And somehow all this prophecy that people have been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years is going to happen through us. And he's just standing there thinking, She's either completely out of her mind or, you know, there's no telling what Joseph thought. But at some point, he had to digest this. And we need to learn from Jesus. I learned from Joseph in this because it's so interesting. It says that he was a just man. And it doesn't say that God gave him a vision immediately to help him figure this out. It says that he was a just man and that he considered the situation and he waited on the Lord. He was not a hothead. He apparently did not lose his anger and immediately shame her or immediately pour out disappointment on her, but he he just kind of, all right, I need to think about this for a little while. And because of his love for Mary, he knew he could not marry her because if she was pregnant by someone else, that that wouldn't work, but he also loved her enough that he did not want to disgrace her, so he was going to find a way to, to divorce her quietly. By being patient with the situation and not flying off the handle, he gave God time to work. And in this particular situation, this ultimately unique situation that has never happened before and will never happen again, the only way for the Lord to give Joseph what he needed is that he comes to him by a vision to tell him exactly what he needs and exactly what is going on. And in this vision, he tells him what has happened with uh, Mary and confirms to him that no, she is not crazy, but what has happened is actually happened and now he is going to have a little bit of that same experience so that they can experience these things together and together as husband and wife walk this most unusual journey in raising Jesus. We must learn from Joseph that when we wait, we must consider and wait for how to handle hard situations. There are some things that we must do and things that we can learn from Joseph. I keep saying Jesus. Excuse me. It just comes right out. Joseph in this situation and how it is that we should wait in dealing with difficult and hard situations. I think it's very important that we learn from James chapter 1, that we should be always quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think that it is altogether reasonable to look at this situation and think that Joseph had a right to, to get angry with this situation when it's first revealed because it's, it's, it appears to be adultery. It appears to be unfaithfulness. And yet he is careful and he is slow to speak and he is slow to anger and leaves his heart open to the Lord. 
We can assume that Joseph also prayed. When we reach very difficult circumstances in our life, we should pray about those circumstances because when we kneel and we pray, we're opening our heart to the Lord to hear from him as to what it is that he would have for us to do. In Joseph's circumstance, we have a very unusual vision. In our circumstance, the norm is that we should go to Scripture, that when we're faced with something very difficult that we don't know how to deal with, we should be slow to anger, we should be quick to pray, and we should be quick to open the Scriptures and begin to search the Scriptures as to what it is that the Lord would have for us to do in this particular situation. In this way, the Lord will speak to us and give us what we need in the moment. Often, we do not know what we need when we get news that we have a rebellious teenager that is in trouble with the law, or we have lost our job, or your spouse has lost their job, or there is a serious injury, a life-altering injury to a spouse, or perhaps a child that dies, or true infidelity of a spouse. There are major, major situations that can come into your life that can unsettle everything. And how you deal with that at that moment in time is very important. It is important for us to believe the word of God, to not grow angry, to be prayerful, to search the scriptures. And in searching the scriptures, know that the Lord will give us what it is that we need to get through that very difficult time. We must believe the word of God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It's important to remember that this is an ancient proverb, and it is not altogether unrealistic to think that Joseph knew this proverb and actually leaned upon this very verse in part to help deal with the situation that he was going through. Lean not on your own understanding. He had no idea what was going on or how this was all going to unfold, but he was given a little bit by the Lord. This is of the Lord. You're to name him Jesus, and you're to trust me. And he says, yes, Lord, and he moves forward with those things. Joseph became a steady provider for Mary and the family. And we are never really, he's never really spoken of significantly in Scripture again. And by church history and other things, we know that he died before Jesus entered into his full ministry. And so really, he never saw in this earthly life the fulfillment of the many things that he sacrificed for and believed in and hoped in by faith. So Joseph is a biblical example to us, especially to us men, of a faithful, loving, steady husband that trusted the Lord, believed his word, and lived what the Lord called him to do. Well, next in Luke chapter 2, we need to look at the humility, and we're going to spend most of our time here, the humble nature of the incarnation of Jesus. It should never cease to astonish us that the Son of God was born in poverty, in a small barn, and after being born, was laid to rest in an animal feeding trough. This is wild, and this is so far beyond what anything we would ever think of. It is by the design of God's providence that Jesus was born and raised in a working-class, poor home. And throughout his ministry, he lived and he worked amongst the poor. From the beginning of his ministry, it is shown that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first, and that the kingdom of God is most joyfully and most often welcomed by the poor and by the needy. The rich and powerful regularly stumble over the ministry of Jesus, 
but the poor and the sick are most often welcomed by him with rejoicing. Early in the ministry of Jesus, we see that his, his birth is proclaimed to who? It's proclaimed by angels to shepherds in a field, those that were of, of no account to the world, but the Lord opens up a window to heaven to show them what was going on. And what do those shepherds do? They get up, they come to town to find this Savior that they might make much of him and worship him. At the same time, the, the proclamation of the birth of a new king is given to Herod, Herod the king. What does Herod do when he tries to, when he, when he figures out that a new king has been born, he sends out an execution squad to try to kill this king or squash him or get rid of him. Right from the very beginning, it is the poor that welcome Jesus, not the rich, not the wealthy, not the powerful. The humility of Jesus' ministry is made clear that his kingdom is not of this world. He did not value the things of this world, which are passing and decaying. Jesus never, never valued accumulated material wealth, never valued the fame of those that were around him or positions or titles. Jesus valued the unfolding of God's will and the state of the person, each individual person's soul before God. He valued what God valued and was focused only on that. The humility of Jesus' ministry relates to his role as our great high priest before God. Hebrews 4.5 says that Jesus Christ is our great high priest and that in that role he sympathizes with our weakness. He is an advocate before us to the Father. And we know that it's impossible to advocate for someone that you don't understand or you don't have any sympathy with. And so for Jesus to sympathize with us, he had to walk in our shoes. He had to live as we did, and that's what he did. He has been tempted as we have been tempted. He has felt our hardship and need. He has been hungry and lonely. He has suffered at the hands of wicked men. And no matter what it is that you may go through, in some way or another, Jesus has walked in that same way and can sympathize with the struggle that you are struggling with. He is our great and sympathetic high priest. He did not minister in an isolated academic setting or as a wealthy, separated emperor. Instead, he was a suffering servant that lived amongst us. In all this, the important application concerning the humility of Jesus' incarnation, one of the important applications, is that we should never, ever despise or look down upon those who are poor. I'm going to read for you James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, because this theme is all throughout the New Testament, that we should never ever look down upon those who are poor or those who have less, because they lived and walked in the same manner that Jesus did. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, it says this. Let me turn my page back here. It says this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So it says that the Lord has chosen the poor of this world to reveal his kingdom to first. And that is part of the humility of the ministry of Jesus, that those who had the first contact with him and who had the most contact with him were those that were the weakest and the poorest and the least of society. Why is this? Uh, well, Jesus says that those who, excuse me, Jesus from his place of poverty and humiliation said in Matthew chapter 19, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it that it is a stumbling block or why, what difficulty does material wealth present to hearing and obeying and, and accepting the message of Jesus Christ? Material wealth is a stumbling block to us because it presents many temptations for our wealth to focus our time and our affections and our identity on the passing things of this world. Jesus had a laser focus on doing the will of God, and he was never interested in accumulating wealth or titles or fame because all those things were passing away. But we know what it's like to spend so much of our life and so much of our time and so much of our attention trying to reach a certain position or accumulate a certain thing, and it can take away dramatically from our service and love for the Lord. And so, as Jesus said, it is difficult for a person who has much of the wealth of this world to hear his message and to listen to it. In the parable of the great banquet, Jesus presents a wealthy, presents a, a, a picture of wealthy people being invited to a great banquet. And he goes out and he invites all these people. And you think, oh, this king is inviting all these people to this banquet. They'll gladly respond. But what we see in that parable is excuse after excuse after excuse that people give because they want to go do their own thing and they're not interested in what the Lord is doing. And so the response to this is that the poor and the weak are invited to come and fill the banquet hall. And they come in and they fill the banquet hall up. They have no excuse. They're glad to be there. They want to hear the ministry and the message of Jesus during the humble, and humble ministry of Jesus, it was the poor that knew most that they needed the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. They were forgiven much by Jesus, and because they were forgiven much by him, they loved him much. I want to read to you a word from uh, how J.C. Ryle speaks about these things. He says this, Let us beware of despising the poor because of their poverty. Their condition is one which the Son of God has sanctified and honored by taking it voluntarily upon himself. God is no respecter of persons. He looks at the hearts of men, not at their incomes. Let us never be ashamed of the cross of poverty. If God thinks fit to lay it upon us, to be godless and covetousness or covetous is disgraceful, but it is no disgrace to be poor." A mean dwelling place and coarse food and a hard bed are not pleasing to the flesh and blood, but they are the portion which the Lord Jesus himself willingly accepted from the day of his entrance into the world. Wealth ruins far more souls than poverty, and when the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem and of him who was laid in it, 
Such thoughts may deliver us from much harm. And I agree with Pastor Ryle that when we are tempted to look at the things of this world, we ought to look back, and this is one of the good things about reading the Gospels over and over, is to see the humility of Jesus and the totally different way that Jesus evaluated his life and evaluated his time. He did not seek after the things of this world, and he was born in the most humble possible circumstances. Finally, the scriptures teach us that the humility of Jesus' incarnation was for our ultimate and eternal blessing. In 2 Corinthians, it says, You know that the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So as we look at this verse and what it means, it says, By grace, or by the favor and the love of God, Jesus Christ came. And Jesus, who was clothed in all the perfect glory and splendor of heaven, humbled himself. He was rich, it says, but for your sake he became poor. He humbled himself that you might be saved, that you might know who he is. So that by his poverty and death upon a cross, you might experience the glorious splendor of heaven. This speaks to Jesus as our substitute. He was born to suffer and to die for you and for me. He did not need us, but without him, we would be ruined. We must have him, or we will be lost on that last day. He came not to live in isolation, but to seek and to save the lost. He came to give hope and hopelessness, hope to the hopeless, and peace to those that were under the weight of their sins. He came to serve the diseased and the sick to bring little children into his arms. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is the mission of Jesus Christ. As we apply these things in closing, we know that Jesus came that he might be glorified through your salvation. What is the state of your soul today? Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? when he came to humble himself and make himself open to you that you might have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, do you know him in a personal way? Have you put your faith and hope in him? We live in the wealthiest country in the world, and I ask you, are you applying the the mandate put upon us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, that those of us who are rich in this present age have certain responsibilities laid upon us that we live humbly with what we have, that we not be those who are proud and look down upon the poor, that we place our hope only in Jesus Christ, that we do not hope in any way in the things that we have, that we do good with what we have constantly, that we be rich in good works, that we be known for our generosity and sharing, and in showing this, that we show the love of Jesus for the people that we care about storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for our time uh, together this morning. We look to this passage and we see the humble birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we pray that in his humility we would be humble like him, following after your example. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.